1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: This week on Chatter, Katie Benner of The New York Times on covering the Justice Department during the crazy.
2: One of the interesting things about the Trump era is that Trump made it very politically costly to try to hold him to account. Look at what happened to everybody who touched the Mueller investigation. So, after January 6th, you had a department that was still pretty shell shocked. You know, history, when we live it, it changes us. And we're not the same people we were before the thing happened. And departments, institutions are made up of people. You know, the Trump era has forced people to ask questions they didn't have to ask before. So in a post-Trump era, to say, we're just gonna go back to regular order, I thought that is either um, extremely naive or just something that's very comforting
0: to say. So, Katie, I want to start with a time. uh, I think it was right around the beginning of the Trump administration when you emailed me and we'd never met and told me you were coming to DC to cover the Justice Department and uh, asked me to have coffee. And so, um, and we met at Java House and we had a, a protracted conversation about covering the Justice Department, it was right when you came to Washington. So let's start there. When was that, and how long have you been uh, covering the Justice Department for The New York Times?
2: Oh my goodness, yes. So I took the job in December, it might have been November of 2017. Donald Trump had been president not even a year. And I was supposed to start on January, whatever it was, right after New Year's Eve, right after New Year's, maybe January 3rd, 4th, 5th, around that period. And that's when we would have met. And I remember coming to the Washington Bureau from the San Francisco Bureau of the New York Times.
0: where right, we You had, were kind of like a tech reporter before that, Yeah, right? I'd
2: been a Wall Street reporter and then a tech reporter, always business, um, which I still miss. It's one of the best things you can cover. And... Uh, <laughs> I I got to the DC bureau and it was still kind of it had the vibe of a fairly shell-shocked place um as did kind of the city
0: yeah sort of the, like the people in the right in the in the middle of the blitz
2: right exactly and you know people hadn't gotten very much sleep i think people had been drinking very heavily across the city uh and i came from northern california where i'd been sleeping like you know 7 8 hours a night and uh, you know, going on hikes. <laughs> and so I was not necessarily culturally prepared for what I was about to experience. And I found it very curious because I, I obviously went to my colleagues and other people who would covered DOJ and worked at DOJ and said, could you give me a list of everybody you think I should talk to just to give me some uh, working knowledge of the building and the culture of it and what's going on? And everybody said, yeah, we'll do that, but also know that it's completely different now. So everything you're going to hear is kind of like an ancient, ancient lore <laughs> of, of a time before. And I was like, how could that be? You know, how could a huge institution with hundreds of thousands of employees change in, in nine months? I thought that sounded totally absurd. And then we met and you were basically like, good luck. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You will never find any information. Uh but the, you know, that it was going to you you did say that it was like probably the most interesting time to cover the building.
0: Yeah, certainly that I, I guess the period between then and now, there has never been a week that it hasn't been super interesting across you know, 10 different axes. So what was the thing, the lore of the department that you found most obviously wrong? I mean, not because anybody believed it, any, but like things that people said, well, this is ancient history. And you walked in and you were like, wow, that really must be ancient history because it sure doesn't describe this building now.
2: <laughs> well, there are kind of two pieces of that. So one, um, You know, I got here and I was really surprised at how there was this, um, I I heard rhetoric all the time about how the men and women of the FBI are unimpeachable and everybody knows that. And I was like, really? (laughs) Because that's just not true. I mean, look at everything through Watergate. Look at Hoover. Look at what happened to the civil rights movement. Look at what happened to MLK. And I was like, what has happened? in this place where all these Democrats I know who are exactly of the age where they'd be highly suspicious of the FBI are going on cable news and saying and being quoted in a major publication saying like, everybody knows the FBI is completely unimpeachable and trustworthy. And I thought, okay, something's definitely happened there because that's like being in the upside down. And then the other piece, you know, when I came is there was a lot about how um, the Justice Department was a completely um a political place. And I what I found is that it's so much more subtle than that. It is for the most part a place where people just don't care about politics in part because they have a lot of work to do and they just want to clear things off their desk. Um, they're generally overworked. But also um that it's in tension with the reality that the top of the department is politically appointed and itself has to do this dance of supporting the administration's political priorities and prosecutions, which are different. And so, but because one of the things that had happened under Trump is that there was no room for, it felt like there was no room for subtlety anymore and no room for nuance. So you had these really broad things that everybody had to believe. And if you didn't outright believe them or question them or try to inject nuance, you were you failed a purity test of some sort. You failed like a pro-institution Purity test, a pro-institution anti-Trump purity test. And I think that was true not just for the way people saw DOJ, but all sorts of places in Washington, State Department, you know, um CIA, of course, FBI, et cetera. So I thought that it reminded me, remember after 9-11 when The Onion had an article that was like irony is dead, like we'll never have it again? <laughs> it kind of felt like that, where it was like nuance, goodbye.
0: Right. Um so I have, I'm going to bounce around time-wise a little bit, but I, I, I think of you every time some major investigation, starting with the January 6th committee and now the special counsel, um, uh, uh, makes a big deal of the attempted coup at the Justice Department, uh, which is, of course, a story that you broke. And nobody... Like people didn't really pay attention to at the time, except Justice Department uh, obsessives like me. But in right, right after January sixth, you guys ran this story about Jeffrey Clark and uh, and his uh, superiors, which is now central to the uh, the prosecution of Trump. And I'm I'm curious. Um, I'm curious, first of all, were you surprised to see it as central as it is? Um, And secondly, um, uh, did you learn anything from the indictment that you didn't already know?
2: So on the latter question, I I think that by the time the indictment came out, um, there was very little of it that hadn't already been in the public uh, between the reporting I'd done and then the things unearthed by the January 6th committee. That was a, what actually surprised me about the indictment is that there wasn't um, a more smoking gun feel, that it was really all known. I mean, with the exception of like things at the margin, you know, conversations he had with Pence or with maybe one with Meadows that weren't public, but they don't do anything to really add to our knowledge. You know, I, I was actually quite surprised that there wasn't a, you know, um, co-conspirator for or, um, you know, White House aide. A uh, said that, you know, Donald Trump told him on December 14th that he knew he'd lost, but he wanted to do this anyway. You know, so, so, I, I, it, it was really interesting to me that so much of it was already known. And then in terms of the story itself, um, it was a funny story because We were all very obsessed with January 6th, of course, and I was doing a lot of reporting then. I was working with Adam Goldman. We were just trying to break as much news as possible about the Justice Department and what it was doing about January 6th. And we got, I mean, I think Adam and I did a great job getting a lot out there. Um, And then in one stray conversation I had with somebody, I said, uh, we were talking about this and he goes, listen, he was like, this is crazy. I really do think that we are responding as well as we can as the department to this horrific attack and he said but you would not believe how crazy it got here
0: before (laughs) burying the lead there
2: and i was like oh okay i was like wow and he goes i can't even talk about it he was like maybe like he's like maybe after you know biden's president maybe like we can get a drink or something and he was like i don't know he's like it's just so stressful and I was like, oh, that's weird. So then on inauguration day, <laughs> when Biden had been president for about a minute, followed he up, gave, gave a ring and was like, Hey, remember all <laughs> oh, about how crazy it was inside. I'm just so curious. Um, you know, I had always assumed he was talking about in some anticipation of an attack or something. You know what I mean? That there'd been like a conversation where the Justice Department had tried to have some fight with like muriel bowser or the mayor of dc to do something i don't know i was just like because you know you're thinking about the attack and he was like Ugh. <laughs> and so as as i was learning more about this I, I thought this is literally insane and i even when i wrote the story i remember how i I remember we've been sitting down to write it. i wrote it in one night once i'd finally nailed down all the sourcing and i really wanted to tell it was so cinematic and um but I I remember thinking, um, you know, we'd seen Trump, especially with the call he made to um the president of Ukraine, try to use levers of power and use like already well worn channels of power. It's not like Donald Trump would be the first president to call another world leader and ask them to do something. I mean like,
0: Or even to lean of, on him to do or even to, right like we, exert I mean, pressure. We do that. LBJ.
2: Hello? I mean, Johnson was known for his ability to exert pressure in ways that were questionable at times. So anyway, but, that he, want, but he was willing to co-opt levers of power in um, ways that broke a norm or in ways that could have broken a law. And so I remember when I was reporting the story thinking he wanted to use the remaining shreds of legitimacy of the Justice Department to basically publicly lie so that he could seize electoral votes in Georgia. Like, I I mean, as you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I thought that feels like it's probably going to be something we talk about for years to come, uh, just in discussions and debates about executive power. uh, And certainly, even after January 6th, there were there, just on January 7th, the cry over Trump's culpability. And we we're thinking, well, he did so much before this attack and that's going to really play into um, a state of mind before the attack, you know, his intent. Um, so I'm actually not surprised that it's become as big a part of um, accusations of criminal activity, but I just didn't know how it would be. I'm not a lawyer, you know, so I just do it at the sure time. that like, That would that that would that, you know, a a curious investigator would certainly think, Okay, he's willing to use all the power he has and then push past the power he may or may not have into totally murky, uncharted legal waters.
0: So I want to talk to you about uh, one of the meta questions about the Justice Department's handling of the post-election period. And I'm going to sketch this out in two ways and then ask you which aspects of both you think is right. So the first is the, uh, the common sense that the Justice Department really dragged its feet on Trump, um, that, you know, tr- uh, that Merrick Garland was slow to allow uh, an investigation of Trump particularly to be predicated, that he insisted on this bottoms-up Strategy that focused on uh, large numbers of relatively low grade defenders, that he uh, really was concerned that the investigation not appear to be political, um, and that as a result, the Justice Department got caught flat footed by the January 6th committee and kind of only then um, snapped into action and ultimately appointed Jack Smith, who has been running full speed ever since. The second uh, theory is one that you and I have talked about before. And, you know, you back uh, when we interviewed you for the aftermath and you were uh, really stressing how fast the department was moving with respect to Uh, January 6th, arrests, prosecutions, um, and uh, other things mostly related to low-grade or medium-grade violent perpetrators. But you were interested in sort of correcting the perception that the investigation was moving slowly and were were insistent that it was actually moving very quickly. And so I'm interested... How you reconcile these two basic narratives. Is it because one of them is wrong or is it because they really made a strategic decision to focus on low grade offenders first and turn to Trump later?
2: If if a house burns down. There are a lot of ways to go about figuring out what to do. You can spend all of your time trying to get every salvageable object out of the house and move it really, really fast. Or you can say, I need to spend more time figuring out who's ultimately responsible for starting the fire. So I think the department did move very fast on the salvaging all the objects out of the house piece, right? And I think that they're but that, that doesn't mean that they weren't moving fast, but it's sort of like, what's your focus? Um... And so, for people who hate Donald Trump, they're like, they moved too slow. But in terms of just pure speed, they were moving quickly. Especially given that I would say the police officers on the ground did not hold everybody in the building; they let them all go. So it created the it necessitated this like nationwide manhunt, <laughs> supposed to sealing everybody in the building, arresting them, and putting them in jail. Um, which would have been a different way to go. Which would mean the department would have had to do less of the manhunt, but that's not what happened. So they moved really fast to try to get those people. Um, it's so funny though the the idea of Merrick Garland himself. So you know I I think it's a question of uh, focus. And so if what you believe is that Donald Trump is responsible, the focus was in the wrong place. There was lots of energy in being expended every day. But you would say it was just being expended on the wrong thing. Now, also, I think that might be called into question too, because notice every time Donald Trump wants to get people out into the streets to protest and um, and support him in a really in a in an egregious way, they haven't done it. And I think that having you know a thousand people arrested and and many of them convicted is uh, has helped deter that kind of violent action. You know, he's been indicted now three times.
0: And Joe Biden was inaugurated. I mean, they, and Joe Biden they was pulled a lot of people off the streets in an effort to prevent things from interfering with the inauguration.
2: I think Mar-a-Lago being raided, three indictments. Every time Trump has made very provocative statements about how people should be out on the street supporting him, and they're not. And I do think that it, the idea of doing time in prison is very, uns- it's, it's not worth it. So, um, but I think the question of why the focus was where it is, I think that I'll tell you one thing that's just a hunch, I could be totally wrong, and then some stuff based on reporting. I hate the hunch stuff, so I'll do it first. But my, my, (laughs) if I had to guess, one of the interesting things about the Trump era is that Trump made it very politically costly to try to hold him to account. Other presidents could have done this. They just didn't, right? Bill Clinton could have attacked Janet Reno. George W. Bush could have attacked the Justice Department for daring to investigate the torture stuff and said that they were un-American, grotesque, deep staters who didn't care about American security and wanted Americans to die and loved terrorists. He didn't say that. You know, it's just, but Trump, for all sorts of reasons, including that it would undermine democracy, Trump made it so politically costly to try to hold him to account or even raise questions about his behavior, that after January 6th, you had a department that was still pretty shell-shocked. I mean, they were just, look at what happened to everybody who touched the Mueller investigation. Look at to anybody who worked in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office when they were trying to figure out jail time for Roger Stone look at anybody, look at what happened to Jesse Liu in the U.S. attorney, then the U.S. attorney who did not successfully prosecute Andrew McCabe. You know, she paid for that. So he made, you know, she was essentially pushed out of the department. And so like he made that cost so high. It might be subconscious, but when you are thinking to yourself, how do I deal with this man? a legitimate but extremely safe and slow way is to say we're going to go from the bottom up, and if it leads to him, it leads to him, and without fear or favor, we're going to go after him. But, you know, we can't get there until the evidence
0: takes us there. So I do wonder about that. Yeah, so I'm curious um, when you, you know, I kind of have a foot in both camps on this because on the one hand I say the day that the Brad Raffensperger tape became public, that was a predicate for a federal investigation. And I'm not sure why the FBI needed anything more than that. And that was January of, uh, you know, 2021, um, at least in my view, that I don't think you needed any more than that to predicate an investigation. On the other hand, I look at it and I say, um, oh, and the fake electors stories were breaking all, all around. And so, you know, if you wanted to open on Trump, you could have done it quite early. Um, on the other hand, I look at it and I say the sum total of the pre special counsel investigation and the special counsel investigation has taken two and a half years to issue a Jan- uh, January 6th indictment of Donald Trump, along with 1,200 other January 6th cases. The state attorney general in Michigan has taken the same amount of time to indict a few fake electors. Fonny Willis has taken essentially the same amount of time to bring one case. Um, The um, uh, you know, whoever seems to be investigating this stuff seems to have taken about the same amount of time and none of them had 1,200 rioters to deal with at the same time. So I I. Part of me looks at it and says, yeah, they they were focused in the wrong place. Part of me is just in awe of how much they've gotten done in a relatively short period of time, white-collar investigations being slow-moving objects.
2: Exactly. And you know, we had reporting even before the January 6th committee was formed. Remember, before the January 6th committee, there was the Senate. Judiciary Committee investigation and then the House Oversight Committee under Carolyn Maloney also investigating, that during those investigations, we knew that the Justice Department was interested in speaking to folks who had already spoken with those committees and that the inspector general was involved in, unusually, because there was a subpoena that involved um, somebody from they had a signature on it, somebody from the IG's office. I don't remember if it was that there, the statement was from somebody, from, included somebody from the IG's Office of Signature, so sorry about that, but that the investigation happening at the Justice Department had already started flowing over into, um, you know, looking at criminal behavior above and beyond the rioters before the J6 committee. But I think that in the minds of the public, you'll never be able to convince anybody that the Justice Department was moving in that direction or even had moved because the committee work was completely public told in a cinematic way with high, like, you know, high production, um, TV news, um, production values. And it was extremely compelling. Meanwhile, the justice department is working literally in secret. And so I don't think we're actually going to get a really good account of that timeline until either Jack Smith puts it in his final report or reporters excavate it in the subsequent years.
0: So we learned only in the Stanley Cutler history of Watergate, which was published in the 80s, that the Justice Department prior to the appointment of the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, had learned basically everything except the tapes, and that a huge amount that we associated with um, with uh, the committee had actually been, the that forensic work had been done by the Justice Department uh, uh, earlier. Um, I'm curious, you know, when we learn the actual history of this investigation, when it got when it when we will learn it actually got started at the at the high level as opposed to the ground up level. And I don't feel like we know the answer to that question.
2: No. And we reported in 2020, you know, I was writing when I was writing stories with Adam, We reported in 2020 that there were debates about whether or not – this is before Merrick Garland got there. This is when we had an acting attorney general and we had an acting deputy attorney general and an acting U.S. attorney.
0: And the acting U.S. attorney was going on television and saying, I've got (laughs) some seditious conspiracy indictments coming. Yeah. I mean, he, he was like, we've got some seditious conspiracy investigations
2: going and it could include the president. I mean, like, so I think it's hard to say that those conversations weren't happening before Garland got there. We also reported that, um, there were conversations inside of the U S attorney's office in DC, which is sort of the site of all this activity and essentially has been Jack Smith's team. Um, that they were look debating whether or not they had enough to uh, really open an investigation to Roger Stone and his uh, and his um, relation to the attack on the Capitol, um, that there was a debate about whether or not they should have a bottoms up or a top down investigation vis-a-vis the organizers of the January 6th events and Donald Trump himself. I mean, so those conversations were already happening. So if those conversations are happening in the spring of 2020, which is also when they'd already started working on the seditious conspiracy cases against the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, you know, it was in that sort of summer, summer maybe summer spring era. My memory's not perfect on this one. But, you know, it's hard to imagine that they were already going down those roads and then they just stopped. That's generally not how investigations work. You can get stymied, you can hit dead ends, you can get frustrated, you can fight with your supervisors, then they did all those things. But I don't think anybody ever just dropped everything and said, well Merrick Garland's here, so we're not going to do anything anymore.
0: Yeah. So At the end of the day, it sounds like your view is you're not prepared to say the conventional wisdom is wrong. They were moving full speed ahead from the beginning. You're also not willing to adopt the conventional wisdom. You sort of don't think there's enough evidence to determine it at this point.
2: Truly, I think there was a I think to say that that office was not moving incredibly fast and doing tons of work would just be full stop wrong. You can fight over whether or not they're working on the right thing. Um and I also know just from reporting that they were already going down roads that again, uh, you know, we'll have were all questions that needed to be thought about and answered before we could get to this indictment. Do we have enough to look at Roger Stone? Do we have enough to look at this person? How are we gonna approach you know, so that all of those things were happening even before Merrick Garland arrived. So it's just it took it took this long.
0: Yeah. The other thing that's always bothered me about the critique is that the indictment of Donald Trump is a totally different document if you believe the ground up investigation and the top down investigation meet at some place. That is, if you think that some agent of Donald Trump Met with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, and by the way, this didn't happen, or at least there's no evidence that it happened. But we didn't know that until we did the investigation, right? So if you think that at some level Donald Trump directed the insurrection, uh, that's then you have a very different indictment than the one that we do. And you gotta know a lot about the insurrection in order to know that. You gotta know, you know that you, you gotta have done the seditious conspiracy charges and learn that they kind of stop at stuart rhodes and they kind of stop at enrique tario there's no secret meeting where mark meadows calls them and says the president wants you to do blank right and i think that actually matters that we know we don't know that it didn't happen, but we have no evidence that it did happen.
2: And that prosecutors weren't able to prove it enough to put it in this indictment. And to not be able to prove it enough to put it into this indictment, they had to go through a lot of dead ends. They had to run down a lot of things. Absolutely.
0: So I want to backtrack and talk about your your professional history. When most people think of a Justice Department reporter to the extent that people think about Justice Department reporters. (laughs) Which I I never did until until about seven years ago. (laughs) um, People, like, I think about people who have been, you know, court reporters, people who've, um, who've, you know, are sort of uh, people who followed federal investigations, former police reporters, former FBI reporters. You came to this, as you said, from business reporting. How did that happen? And um, you know, how do you go from from being a, a, a Silicon Valley reporter and working? I think you worked for Forbes for a while. Oh, Fortune. Yeah. Fortune. I love Fortune. That was like the dream. And yeah, so like like what's the, the Katie Benner history here that takes you from that to a coup at the Justice Department?
2: Well, I mean, <laughs> we had to have President Trump to get the coup. So thanks to him. Thanks, thanks, Donald. Um, but uh, the, all of the things that people usually do before they cover DOJ, interestingly covering business, the thing that's similar is that there's usually a yes or no, right or wrong answer for a lot of things. Not everything, not like the big political philosophy questions, but like, um, is there an investigation? Yes or no? is this person a target? Yes or no. And it's and if you get that wrong, it's a big deal. And I think that's one of the reasons why covering business. It's like, well, did Apple make money or did they lose money? Yes or no. I can suppose anything I want, but I can also be wrong. And unless the reporting is very solid, I will also be proven wrong soon because they will have their quarterly earnings report or their annual report. And so it's that kind of reporting in that kind of lens that, um, I think made it easier for me to make the switch from like business reporting to DOJ than if I'd been like a political reporter where there isn't a lot of right and wrong. I mean, it's like, okay, people did support something or not, or kind of supported it, but then it never really happened anyway. So if you get it, If they change their minds, there's a fuzziness there. There's like no fuzziness. And the poll
0: data moved 2%. Does that mean you were right or you were wrong?
2: I Right, exactly. Whereas like if you say that activist investors are going to take out the CEO of Yahoo and they don't do it, you were wrong. (laughs) You know, so if you say, that's why I think Justice Department reporters, one of the things I love about the DOJ pool and all of the reporters I worked with from other publications and the press room there is everyone's cognizant of that fact. So like, no matter who's pressuring you, whether it's an editor or whether it's, you know, whatever, can't we just say that Mueller is going to indict Donald Trump? It's like, no, we cannot. Like, I don't care. (laughs) Like, I do not care. Maybe, okay, yes. Can people write that in op-eds and can people say that on I guess some new shows, but if you're essentially reporting on the department, no, absolutely you can't say that Um, because you don't know. You really don't know. Um, So that kind of transition, sort of just a reporting transition, was not that hard. Other things were so hard, um, like Like even it just source having no sources. I mean, you haven't lived until you move to Washington, DC, and try to compete with Devlin Barrett, um, (laughs) who has been covering the FBI since he was a toddler, seemingly, and is like the best source reporter. I only thank God that I was working with Adam Goldman and not competing against him or I would have lost my mind. But that is like, then the process becomes reaching out to people like yourself for coffee literally every hour of the day, every day, reading the Justice Department manual at the same time understanding what an indictment is, which I did not know, you know, and reaching out on LinkedIn to every single human being you can find who works at the department to send them a note only so they can send that note to the head of public affairs so she can call you and yell at you, you know, rinse and repeat for nine months. So it was like, (laughs) I I, I, uh, I drank a lot of coffee, Um, but yeah, so it's like, but the career path was... um, you know i started covering something very wonky i was really um general assignment entry level at a at a new site at cnn money business site but i was i started learning about the bond market because one no competition there nobody cares <laughs> two i am a wonky person and there's like a rhyme and a reason to bonds and yields that doesn't exist for stocks so i was more attracted to that and then three this was like 2000 Four-ish, and already you could see something happening in the housing market that was so unnatural, and all of that data was all in the bond market and ready and available. And you had this like very interest, uh, interesting interest rate policy um, under um, the Fed. So it was like, okay, well, this is actually wonky, interesting. And then it became generally interesting because we had a fixed income based financial crisis. So it was like, I kind of it was sort of felt like right place, right time. Um, to be part of a really big story as a reporter, which is really fun. I mean, it's like really fun. And then when the Wall Street story became all regulation, I was like, ew, <laughs> no. But the tech story was so interesting. And Fortune Magazine, unfortunately, and all of Time Inc. was like dying. And I thought, I need to get out of here before I'm competing with every co- colleague I have for a job. So I joined a startup to cover tech. Which everyone said I was like insane to do, blah, blah, blah. But timing was dismantled and sold for parts. So I got out, I think, at a good time. And again, that process of sourcing, like, okay, how do I learn something really fast was the name of the game. Um, And then... As you can imagine after Donald Trump was elected you could be writing the most interesting story in the world about almost anything you know alien life could exist for example and nobody really cares and I thought okay well if the big story is happening in Washington should I consider going to Washington and it just so happened that DC had lost its DOJ reporter and Matapuzo was really tired and he wanted help <laughs> And I knew him, so he reached out and he asked if I'd be interested and that's how it happened. And I thought, okay, well, I've done the thing where I learned something really fast before. I think I can do it again. And he was like, okay, yeah, that's great. You'll just be doing it under uh, tremendous pressure um, to get scoops, uh, insane amounts of scrutiny and um, with colleagues who are extremely stressed out. And I was like, oh, that sounds good.
0: And was it fun? It was so
2: fun. (laughs)
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
0: Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I wanna say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, It finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent lawfare 20. <laughs> um, <so> I, want, <laughs> I want to talk about the Justice Department today. But before we do, I want to zero in on something you said, which is that how hard it is to get sources in the department. Um, there's this presumption that a lot of people have that the Justice Department leaks like a sieve because we get all this information about investigations, most of which comes from defense lawyers and, uh, and witnesses. Um, in my experience, the actual leaks from prosecu- real prosecutors are pretty rare. Um, what does it mean to have sources at the Justice Department?
2: So that's interesting. You're right. A lot of, um, information does come from the defense bar, but it's hard for readers to know that because the story, the lead will often say the justice department is asking people questions about X financial transaction in the money laundering case involving this person.
1: So sources
2: familiar familiar say, and obviously the defense lawyers will know what the justice department was asking too, but you're right in that the assumption because of the construction of the lead in the sentence is that it would be DOJ. And not all defense lawyers are willing to share information. <laughs> Didn't want to make it sound like that because if that were the case, it'd be a much easier job. <laughs> and then it would be, a, then would, you know, be pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, Justice Department sources come in all, you know, I, I was actually just having lunch with somebody and we were talking about reporting. One of the most sort of, interesting aspects of the job. And it doesn't matter what it is you cover. It's the same. Uh, How do you get somebody to do something for you? You're asking somebody to do something for you. And uh, everybody has a different way. You know, some reporters are very threatening and very terrifying. I, unfortunately, I wish I could be both of those things, but it doesn't really
0: work. (laughs) Pikachu mask doesn't help. It's. If, you're, if you're going for terrifying, yeah. there, there is nothing <laughs> less terrifying than Pikachu.
2: I'm not bullying anybody into helping me, um, but I think that for me, I do try to go to people having demonstrated and again, this is like. Again, This is a very nerdy thing, right? If you're covering the financial crisis and trying to figure out who the short sellers are and who's making money and who's not making money, coming into those conversations with like a really incredible working knowledge of the bond market and fixed income and the inverted yield curve and what was happening in subprime and the ratings agencies helps you (laughs) because that's the world these people inhabit. And they, at least if nothing else, they like that you respect them enough to try to understand, even if you're still effing up other things and you need help and... You're not really sure. At least you tried to understand what's going on. So I did try to come in. I had a lot. Of, I mean, some of my questions were really basic. You know, like what's an indictment? I mean, like I'm. I was. I. I don't try to hide when I don't know things because then how
0: we ever find out? So I would go in with very basic questions. Um, but I think that. By the way, the what's an indictment question? You know, people. People think that's a stupider question than it is. Well, clearly the country doesn't know
2: what it is because they thought Jack Smith was going to indict Donald Trump. And they thought, I remember getting calls from, you know, people – Producers and people on the Hill saying, Do you think Jack Smith will indict Donald Trump over the weekend? And you're like, No,
0: I think maybe he will <laughs> seek an indictment from a grand jury <gasps> right. on a day that the grand jury meets. And if he does it over the weekend, we'll definitely
2: know because we'll see a bunch of grand jurors marching down <laughs> to the courthouse on a Sunday afternoon. And you wonder why that is. So, I mean, but it's, it, that's one of those issues. That's one of those areas where you can actually get pretty far not knowing. Because you just know somebody got in trouble and they're going to be accused of a crime. But once you're actually covering the department, I think it it makes sense to to just know that people are going to think you're an idiot, but ask the question, get the information, but also understand that that conversation, that point of connection is a real opportunity to understand lots of things beyond the answer, that person's communication style, how they approach giving you information, how much they're willing to give. Did they give more than what you asked for? were did they mind the call if you have to call somebody again and again trying to get far more invasive items out of them than what's an indictment that's good stuff to know you're learning a lot you are learning a lot so what is a justice department source a justice department source there are many flavors and i'll go from like most primary would be the public affairs people at the justice department they are sources that is literally their job and they are um given permission by the principals of the department, whether it's attorney general, deputy attorney general, head of the criminal division, whomever, to share information with the press. Sometimes they do it on the record. Sometimes they do it in press releases. And sometimes they do it in off the record briefings um, with attributable to a senior DOJ official. And sometimes they do it in briefings where nothing's attributable, but they're like, just for your information, you should be near your computer today. (laughs) That's you don't know what the story is, but it's very helpful information. So that's your first line of defense
0: principles. And by the way, that type of uh, you you might not want to make plans this evening <laughs> from the right person at the right time. Not grand jury information. Mm-mm. Not anything improper. It can actually be misleading yes. in the sense that if say it causes you. The entire press corps to expect one thing, and then something else happens. You can be wow. it can be a little bit surprising. Yeah. But um, but it's it's a very common, it's a very common type of thing that is consistent with the obligations of the officer in question, but also can be very helpful.
2: And then there are people who are willing to explain um, procedures to you rules of the game. Those can be people inside the department, people who used to work at the department. They can be an OPA. I mean, a great example is, you know, we had, I won't say who, but I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was in, it was in the stories at the time that were published. So it's okay to say some of this, but you know, when Trump's Ukraine call happened, the Justice Department did a briefing and everyone described it according to senior Justice Department officials. It wasn't willing like to pretend the department didn't give this to us, but the department gave us a briefing with senior Justice Department officials to walk us through why that call had been looked at by the Justice Department and did not eventuate in a criminal investigation. Now, people can agree or disagree. They can say they spun you, they lied to you, they whatever, but that's also a source of information.
0: Right, it's super and it's a super helpful source in the sense that the department is explaining its thinking, whether again, whether it's right or wrong, it's it's really highly valuable.
2: It's highly valuable and it's historic too. I mean, think about all the press briefings that happened around WMDs. Of course, right. we found out later they didn't exist, but the existence of the press briefings, the news, it's part of the record of what an administration's doing and whether or not, and how much we can trust them in a bigger way. So that's the kind of source. There are disgruntled people in every organization, um, you know, covering te- the tech industry. I'm sure you noticed that when, um, layoffs were happening, the perks were going away, the salaries weren't as high. Suddenly there were a lot more negative stories about different tech companies, including Facebook, because people are just more disgruntled. So you're not going to have... those people talking to the press when they're happy and they're making $250,000 a year, getting free lunch every day, getting their dry cleaning done and getting a bus to work. Like they generally don't talk. During the Trump administration, there were many, many, many unhappy people. And so a lot of, I'll just say that for, yeah, in my work, some of the stories that I broke earlier on were about a change in policy internally, initiatives changing, um, shutting down offices without telling anybody, you know, shutting down. The initiative was um, uh, an office that helped indigent people get legal aid. Um, You know, so just little things like that. Again, nobody's breaking a grand jury rule. Nobody's giving out information on a prosecution. And then um, what you're always trying to look for, though, are people who... um, for me, it's because they understood I was interested and was willing to do a lot of homework to understand something, who are willing to help you understand more technical things that might eventuate in um, scoops, moves, anticipating moves the department could make. Um, so I think an example of that would be around the China Initiative program. You didn't have to be a rocket scientist to know that when Biden got to the department, that that administration was going to take a, a different look at the idea of something called the China Initiative. Um at a time when there was a lot of hate crimes against Asian people during the pandemic, and because some of those pro- prosecutions had been um, failures. They hadn't worked out. The department had lost and, um, you know, had, had ruined a couple lives.
0: So, and also because the nomenclature is <laughs> itself upsetting, right? It yes. implies that um, it implies a uh, a degree of loyalty suspicion around an ethnicity right. rather than a um, r- rather than a concern about an adversary actor that right. may recruit among Americans. And
2: I think realistically we saw like I had written a story about how Saudi Arabia had put spies inside of Twitter to get information about dissidents. It's not like China's the only country doing this. So ultimately the China initiative was rebranded with a not a country specific name, et cetera, et cetera. But you did not have to be a rocket scientist to know that this was probably going to happen. So in terms of sourcing, it just meant going to every single human being I'd ever known inside the department, outside the department, who'd ever touched the China initiative, worked on it, worked on a case, and just be like, what are you sorry to call again? (laughs) What what are you hearing? And you know, and again, that's not um it's not grand jury information. It's not about a prosecution. It's not about um uh, you know, it's it's not about something secret per se. It's just something the administration right. would probably not want you to break. They just want to get it done before and and roll it out. So those are sources. Those are the main kinds of DOJ sources.
0: Yeah. So that's super helpful. I I think of like DOJ sources as kind of falling into like categories that like there is the the relatively rare investigative leaker either at the FBI or the justice department, but it's like, I really way, want to meet that person. Yeah. It's way rarer than, <laughs> than most news consumers seem to believe. Um, mo- When I was covering the department every day, most of my sources were policy sources mm-hmm. and you know, there are some law, I don't think he would mind my saying this. There are some lawfare, writers who I met because I would call the public affairs office as an editorial writer, they wouldn't be able to answer my question. So they, uh, you know, would call David Chris down from the deputy's office and say, totally. you know, get get on, you know, I'm going to put you on the phone with David Chris. And we had a long conversation about FISA. And that's how I met David, who, you know, now writes for Lawfare. Um, and the, you know, like there, that conversation was, you know, a deputy's office person in the public affairs office recruited by the public affairs office because they couldn't answer my questions and they wanted me to get on the phone with someone who could uh, answer the authority. Totally. A a totally. Um, so um, I want to talk about the department now. Almost everything we've talked about has been the department in the Trump administration. Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco come in with this idea that they're going to reestablish the regular order, reestablish the norms of the department, and do everything according to the usual way, the traditions that uh, had been done violence to. Um, Now you have Republicans shouting about weaponization of the Justice Department. Um, uh, To what extent Do you think there has been a traditional order reestablished? And to what extent is, you know, is should we look at Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco as just sort of Democratic Bill Barrs and and uh, Jeff Sessions? Yeah. So, ooh, this is good. I love this question. I mean, it's so,
2: so dirty. Um, (laughs) But I think, keep in mind, I went on a book leave earlier in this year and now I'm coming back. I'm writing features at the time. So I'm not the Justice Department beat reporter anymore. So some of my information and observations are eight months old or whatever. But I will say that when Garland and Lisa came in and said, we are going to reestablish the norms of the department and go back to regular order and, you um, know, with an eye toward making the American people trust this department again, I thought that is losing proposition and you are setting yourselves up to fail. You yeah, can't do that in, a, in an environment that's polarized. And I think this is a thing that people don't want to say out loud, but, you know, history, when we live it, it changes us. And we're not the same people we were before the thing happened. And this And departments, institutions are made up of people. And so, you know, the Trump era has changed the department and forced people to ask questions they didn't have to ask before. So can you go back to normal order or do you address the question of when as a career person do you quit because something is happening that's so outrageous that you can't, it it violates what you think of as your oath to the constitution? Well, the minute you start asking that question and talking to your staff about it, that's not normal order. It's just not. You are, you are nodding toward a new reality. So, and Garland didn't want to, you know, he, he I think we did a story about this. He, he didn't want to go into the department and interview every person who worked there about what had happened in the previous four years and figure out what had gone on and try to address it. He was like, uh-uh, that's for the IG to do. If something screwed up happened, whatever. I believe we can just start fresh and go back to regular order and I think that is actually impossible. I don't want I mean like it it's a it the, the justice department and especially the FBI has a really interesting history. You know the history of the FBI. You had J Edgar Hoover doing dirty work for multiple presidents. And that's no, no longer part of the FBI culture. But in making that huge change, and we can be really critical of Jim Comey or whatever, like I'm happy to do that too. But he was also a proponent of some other sorts of cultural changes. Um, But in making that sort of big change, um, Mueller did it, of course, after 9-11. Regular order changes too. Regular order under Hoover was to be a henchman for the president and do a lot of dirty work and a lot of effed up things. Regular order was to investigate civil rights figures. Regular order was to violate constitutional rights of American citizens. You could argue because it happened often enough that that was a part of regular order of the FBI. Under Mueller after 9-11, regular order meant paying attention to a different kind of domestic threat. So in a post-Trump era, to say we're just going to go back to regular order, I thought that is either um, extremely naive or just something that's very comforting to say that you want people to believe, but you understand there's a bigger job to do. I would like to believe it's the latter, but I haven't really seen evidence of that.
0: So what uh, that's a really, you make a really interesting point, but it's uh, it's pregnant with the question of what the new regular order should be. If the, the old regular order is that we abandoned is that the Justice Department is A political that it serves the president. Just follow the rules and everything's okay. In a policy sense, you just follow the rules and you 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 do uh, you follow the justice manual and you don't target people for political reasons and you don't blah blah blah. And now we can't go back to that because you know we're all changed by the experience of the last five or six years. So there's some new order that we're going to establish. What does it look like?
2: And that's a great question. So I, you know, even I just go back in history to um, the travel ban, which we've all forgotten because of freaking gajillion things that happened since the travel ban. Um, Okay. The Justice Department went back and they rewrote it multiple times until it finally passed muster with the Supreme Court. Some would argue that what was different about that is that it all happened in public because DOJ has been asked by the White House before to do things that were like, hey, that's not really legal. And then they went back and behind the scenes went back and forth with the Office of Legal Counsel and, you know, and the White House um, uh, lawyers and hammered it out to make it legal, (laughs) to make it pass muster. And then they unroll it. So it's like, okay, well, if you don't do it that way, which is tradition, but does have an implicit, the White House wants to push the bounds of the law in it, you don't do it that way. Instead, you just come out with something fully that will not pass muster, legally roll it out, take the justice by surprise. Is it it regular order to, okay, I'm going to take this and do what I would normally do if you had not. Put this out on Twitter like a crazy person, but I just sent it over to my office and try to make it work. Or is it, I throw up my hands and I quit because you didn't follow regular order. You didn't follow that piece of it. Reg- you know what I mean? It's sort of like, there's there was debate inside of the department about what to do. We know what Sally Yates did. She was the acting attorney general. She quit. She was like, I'm out. Or she was fired. Wait. Um, but but you know what I mean? Like she she was like, I can't support this. This is terrible. But there were other people inside the civil division, a division that's very, very, very dedicated to apoliticalness, process, regular order. They defend the United States in court. That's what they do. They're not supposed to care about what the thing is. It's is it legal? There was actually more debate than you know what we would have thought, because it's like, well, okay, well, what if instead of tweeting this out? We had just gotten this like we normally would have, run our pens through it, circle all the things that are illegal, put in all of our suggestions to make it pass muster, sent it back, and then the White House had done the thing. We'd done that four times, and then we did it. And again, so I don't know what it looks like. I think that part of a new normal at the Justice Department is actually having to interrogate where um, the norms are weak and be a little bit more honest about it.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. It seems to me the uh, another part of it is, don't lose in court, right? So if, you know, people can th- you know wave their hands about weaponization all they want, but if the if Jack Smith wins these cases and gets them sustained on appeal. That actually answers the question. Ditto a lot of these January sixth cases, right? Ditto, but conversely, not ditto with respect to um, uh, the uh, debt, uh, uh, the student debt relief initiative, right? If you if you if you go into court. Uh, and you you make a lot of your base happy, but then you get your ass kicked in court. And by the way, in a fashion that's quite predictable. Yes, yeah, that was um, not a surprise. It, it was not a surprise to anybody, including the White House and the Justice Department, um, that uh, you know people are going to look at it uh, and should look at it maybe a little bit more askance. And I wonder if the I wonder if the if. In a way that is not true when, when we all paid homage to norms, um, that actually winning cases is a big part of self-justifying. If you if you go into a grand jury and you cannot get an indictment of Andy McCabe, you've got a problem. On the other, and if you go into court john durham and you've indicted two people for your conspiracy theory and they both get acquitted and you know a few hours of jury time you've got a problem on the other hand if you're um and and you know similarly i suppose if you're prosecuting you have a plea deal with hunter biden and a judge takes it apart with a few questions you've got a problem um but if you can if you can issue your press release on the day of your action, and then get it through court successfully, there's a measure of self-justification in that process. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that without being overly careful, without saying like, well, I don't want to bring a case that I could lose, which, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, you're going to lose sometimes. So it's, it's, I don't have an I don't have an answer to your very good question, but now I'm going to think about it a lot. I,
0: I think it's a really interesting in a world in which the post-Watergate norms have died. What are the what are we replacing them with? And are we replacing them with anything like an agreement, or are we place replacing them with an asymmetrical agreement in which, you know, Merrick Garland will pay homage to the old norms. Uh, Bill Barr will play pay homage to the old norms. But a lot of people won't believe that either of them are behaving according to them. And I have my own opinion about both of them.
2: Yeah. And of course, at the end of the day, we're so politicized that like we I think that one of the things we learned over the last few years, unfortunately, is that our institutions, their legitimacy comes from belief that they are trustworthy, so we don't trust the Supreme Court anymore. We don't trust the Justice Department. We don't really trust, you know, there are all these things that we don't trust. Um, and so you wonder what the what the bigger issue is, you know. So again, Merrick Garland's like, I'm going to come in and reestablish norms. I'm going to go back to regular order. And I'm like, there is the what that goal in and of itself is like. It's the it's not realistic.
0: All right, I'm going to. Um going to wrap up but before we do um you've been on leave and you've written a book what's your book about
2: writing well the book is about education in america (laughs) and race not about the justice department at all um i'd written a story while i was covering the justice department i don't i mean this like it was a blur those years my goodness was uh jeff sessions was the attorney general or matt whitaker maybe whoo but uh, there was a school in Louisiana that was getting a lot of um, black students into Ivy League schools. And um, I got a tip actually weirdly, through a justice Department source. I mean, hey, we take anything you can get. Uh, this person was like, "This is really about the Justice Department, but there are a lot of problems at the school. And so the school in and of itself was extremely abusive. And they were kind of they had a, they had convinced these students that the only way for them to get out of the south, And to get to good schools was to kind of submit themselves to, um, you know, behavior that was fraudulent, um, but also like a lot of abuse. And I thought it was a really interesting way to look, um, at, you know, big questions like, well, why is opportunity in America so confined to one's ability to get to a set of colleges? When I was growing up, I'm old. So when I was growing up, you could still do well in America and not going to college my dad didn't go to college. You know, you could still be a blue collar worker. You could still be a person who worked their way up in a company starting in a non-executive, you know, in a lower paid position. You could start out as an administrative assistant and you could work your way up, but now you have to go to college. So how does that constrain opportunity in America? And then also like the issue of race, like one of the things that the students did the admissions officers responded really strongly to was to play up um, negative stereotypes of a black America and say that they had lived these experiences when sometimes they had not. And so what does that say about what white people want of minorities? What does it say about, you know, what the the sort of twinning of um, of negative experience with the minority experience? Um, you know, when the affirmative action decision came down of the Supreme Court and Joe Biden was like, it's okay. If you're a minority student, you can still write an essay about how terrible your life has been. And everybody will know you're not white. I was, I wanted to like scream. I was like, that's the problem. (laughs) Don't say that.
0: That's fucked up. Anyway. So, (laughs) um, it's, it's, it's the, it's the conservative majority of the Supreme court, uh, and a bunch of educational bureaucrats teaming up to create an incentive structure in which uh, if you're applying to college and you're non-white, you have to, you have, to have a horror story.
2: And, wh- and why do we want all of our minorities to be broken fundamentally? How does that serve us as a country? What narratives does it serve? What power structures does it serve? Like who benefits from that? I'm going to tell you with somebody who's not white, it doesn't necessarily benefit the minorities. <laughs> So, you know, I thought it was a very, I mean, anyway, I'm working on it with my colleague, Erica, who's wonderful. And it's just, I mean, we're not going to be done this year. We have a lot of work to do, but we did, (laughs) you know, we're biting off like kind of a a series of sensitive topics. So we we are, um, but that, so I did take some months off to work on that and um, we'll be continuing to work on it. But it was a really interesting thing to do. It was like, all of the Justice Department stuff that had been in my head, it was a really, I mean, efficient way to clear it out quite quickly (laughs) to just look at things that I think I'm very passionate about, you know, and I think that the way that we think of ourselves as Americans, who has opportunity, especially economic opportunity, like we've focused a lot on race over the last several years. And we should always think, you know, about real... Um, you know, like real policy things around race. I think that's always fine. But the economic question is sort of interesting. This is what Biden's been focusing on, even though it's gotten lost in the shuffle. The question of who has economic opportunity in America, it's not that it solves all ills. I'm just going to say that if more people have opportunity, I think we can start to ease a lot of other issues that we have with one another. That are really hard to do when you have huge swaths of the country cut off from the ability to get a job that pays you enough money to have a life where you can afford to live in a home, rent or buy, where you could have a child and conceivably have enough money to feed that child and where there's opportunity that doesn't cost you what is a four-year college now, $62,000 a year. And I think those are huge, important, pressing questions for the country. I think they're huge, important questions for people who don't come from a lot of opportunity like myself. I grew up in a rural part of the country that has been decimated by a lot of 90s era policies. Um, And where we have to start thinking deeply about not only whether or not people have opportunity, but what are the narratives we tell about people who don't have it? Like, you know, how do we think about indigent people? how do we think about people without money? Is there a disdain there? I mean, is there, like, of course, I think there is personally, you know, and there's a way of making them less than, less citizens, lesser citizens. And if you do that enough, I think that it actually feeds back into the political questions we've had through this whole conversation. Who do you want to be the president? Who do you believe? How do you participate in democracy? Do you believe that the system is legitimate? And if you don't, who do you elect and who do you support? So I think there's like a, there, you know, I, it's been, it was, I, I don't know. I think that thinking about those things, is just like so awesome. And, um, obviously I'm a huge dork. Like, listen to me. <laughs> I'm talking to you from the public library in Maine. <laughs> <Impressing> Maine. <laughs> like, Cause I just like took out a bunch of reference books. <laughs>
0: We are going to leave it there. Katie Benner, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.